You've not been living the way you should be living and the way you know you should be living. But God's been merciful to you because he has some special purpose for your life. And see, I thought I had kind of pulled the wool over my mom's eyes, my parents' eyes, that they didn't really kind of know my double life. And they knew full well what I was up to. And so at that moment when my mom said that, you know God spared you for a reason. I was just overwhelmed by God's grace and mercy in my life and, and, and humbled by his call on my life. Even though I didn't know what that meant or, or looked like, um, I don't remember making any conscious decision to change, praying some special prayer. All I know is after that, my life changed. My life was radically, totally different than it had been before that accident. And I went back to school that fall as an eighth grader, and, and I can still, in my mind's eye, see all my friends standing around my desk because I kind of hobbled in, and I still, had a, I still had a brace on my leg. I probably still had a crutch, and I was limping in, and I, could, I was still scarred up pretty bad. And, and so they were all around my desk wanting to know about the accident. They'd heard about the accident. They wanted to hear about it, you know, catching up from the summer, and, you know, who was going to top this story, right? <laughs> Running head on into a van and living to tell about it. And so... Normally, I would have loved all the attention I was getting. I live for that, being, a, being in the center of the attention, being the jokester and the prankster and, and, and making everybody laugh. And regardless of how I got them to laugh, it, it didn't matter. But for the first time, I wasn't focused on myself. All I wanted to do was give glory to God for how gracious and merciful he had been to me. And, and from that moment, I remember that, that day, that, that first day of class, my eighth grade year, God gave me this burden for my unsaved friends who were following the ways of the world. And all I wanted to do was to share with them how, and, and show them how following Jesus would change their life forever. And this all-consuming desire to help others come to know Christ as their as our Lord and Savior grew in its intensity, and, and I knew I wouldn't be content doing anything else but serving the Lord for the rest of my life. And so it was midway through high school when you're supposed to go to the guidance counselor and they're supposed to help you figure out what you're going to do for a living or where you're going to go to college, and right, you got to set your career goal. And there was, there, was, there was absolutely nothing that I had a desire to do other than be a youth speaker. <laughs> that was, I didn't have a youth pastor. We didn't go to a church that had a youth ministry, and so I never even heard of a youth pastor. I didn't know, didn't know what a youth pastor was. Didn't know they existed. And so I just thought, well, I just want to be a youth speaker. I want to be able to take the Bible, open up the Bible, and teach young people, uh, teach you know, students the, the truth of God's Word. And so that's really when, when I think God called me into the ministry, and, and I set my course to serve Him and you know, full-time ministry, and by his grace, I've never looked back. This is all I've ever wanted to do. If you told me today I couldn't be a pastor, I don't, I don't know what I would do. And um, again, I went from being a, wanting to be a youth speaker, and then I went to Bible college, and I found, there, found out there's a thing called a youth pastor and, and, and youth minister. I'm like, oh, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to do. And so I did that for a while, thinking that's all I wanted to do. It, 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 you know, I just wanted to be a youth pastor for the rest of my life. Until the guys around me, where I was serving as a youth pastor, said, hey, you need to go be a senior pastor. I said, I don't want to be a senior pastor. I want to be a youth pastor. 
And I said, no, you need to be a senior pastor. You need to be able to teach, you know, not just the students, but the moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas. And, and at that time I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you that you're going to use the, the godly men in my life, the elders, those that, that you've placed in authority over me and around me. Um, you're going to direct your will for my life through them. And so um, here I am today as a senior pastor. But uh, several years back, we took a trip as a family back to my hometown and uh, wanted to show really Kelly and the kids where I grew up and, you know, the, the house, you know, I grew up in and the, the little store that I used to, you know, get Suzy Q's, which were the, before they had zingers, they had Suzy Q's, right? So this has been a problem my whole life with, with zingers, okay? But they, they were Suzy Q's and I used to get them at this little country store and uh, I would put them on my parents' credit. Because that was, a, you know, it's one of those old, old-fashioned stores. You walk in and your parents had a line of credit. And they would just write it down on a piece of paper and, you know, throw it in the cash register. And your parents would pay the bill once a month. And so I would, I would go in there and I'd put all these Suzy Q's on my parents' credit without their permission, right? So I showed them the, the, the country store, showed them the little school that I went to. And so uh, my favorite donut shop um, growing up. But then uh, before we left town... Uh, I drove to that corner. They didn't know where we were going. And uh, so I drove to that corner where now, almost 40 years ago, um, I almost died. And I just parked the rental car and I just sat there and looked and thought and they were like, what are we doing here? You know? And I explained to them, I said, hey, this is the corner where you're husband and your dad almost died. And uh, this is a a very special place. This is like holy ground for me. Because honestly, um, that bike accident was the turning point in my life. And I'm not sure if I died at that corner, whether or not I'd gone to heaven. Based on the pattern of my life, the way I was living, I don't have the confidence that I was truly saved. But I am sure that I didn't fully understand the level of commitment that Christ required of me and and requires of anyone who calls themselves a Christian. Up until that point, I think I just followed Christ because it was all I'd ever known. Um, When I think back about it, I probably was more following my mom and dad, not following Jesus. Um, I was going to church, memorizing Bible verses, going through confirmation class, listening to Christian music, wearing Christian t-shirts, trying to do all the right things, not because I wanted to, but because I had to. But again, God used that bike accident to change my thinking about what it means to be a Christian. Because for the first time in my life, it dawned on me that Jesus Christ was real and following him was right, regardless of what my parents believed or had taught me to believe. And I began to realize that being a Christian was, was more than just believing all the right things, doing all the right things, going to church on Sunday, reading the Bible, praying, going to a Christian school, having a Christian mom and dad. No, being a Christian is a total radical commitment of your entire life to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. If 
Following Christ means turning away from doing what you want to do with your life and doing what he wants with your life. It means dying to yourself and living for Christ. Becoming a Christian is the most important decision and the most costly commitment that a person will ever make in life. Christ demands everything from those who commit to following and obeying him. And so while salvation is free, it isn't cheap. It costs Christ everything to save us. And so why would it surprise us that it would cost us everything to serve him? He gave up his life so we could be forgiven. And so we must give up our life to follow him. He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. I don't know of anyone who understood or exemplified the cost required of Christ's followers better than a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anybody heard of that guy? Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Okay. You can guess by the name. He's German, right? Um, He was a, a courageous young German pastor who lived and ministered during the reign of Adolf Hitler. And while trying to to gain control of Europe, Hitler also attempted to exert control over the German church. And so in an effort to undermine traditional Christianity, he forced Protestant churches to merge together and form what he called the Protestant Reich Church and support Nazi ideology. And his goal was to purge Christianity of any Jewish elements, including even the Old Testament. Let's just get rid of the Old Testament because that's all Jewish. And so Bonhoeffer, along with other Lutheran pastors, opposed the encroaching influence of Nazism within the church. And so the Gestapo eventually banned him from preaching and publishing, and he was forced to go underground, where he helped create what became known as the Confessing Church, the underground church in the, in the, in the, not during the years of the Nazi regime. And, and this, this covert resistance movement hid many Jews from the Nazis and smuggled many of them out of the country throughout World War II. At the same time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer worked closely with a secret group of high-ranking military officers who were powerfully portrayed in that recent Tom Cruise movie, Valkyrie. Anybody see that movie, Valkyrie? Okay. Um, they wanted to overthrow the Nazi regime and assassinate Hitler. I came across an interesting article a few years back called Valkyrie's Forgotten Man. Who do you think that was? the article is referring to? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was uh, arrested after money used to help some Jews escape to Switzerland was traced back to him. He was charged with conspiracy and imprisoned in Berlin for a year and a half. And then when the plot to, to kill Hitler failed, his connections to the conspirators were discovered. And so he was moved to a series of concentration camps and then eventually executed along with a group of co-conspirators at a place called Flossenburg on April 9th, 1945, just weeks before the Germans surrendered to the Allied forces. Well, as you can imagine, Hitler wanted his attempted assassins to die a slow, shameful death and to make an example out of them. And so he, he ordered 
that they be stripped naked and hanged from meat hooks in nooses made of piano wire. The doctor who attended the execution and who later signed Bonhoeffer's death certificate described the scene like this. And let me just quote from this doctor. He said, on the morning of that day, between five and six o'clock, the prisoners were taken from their cells through, uh, through the half-open door in one room of the huts. I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. He said this, in the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Bonhoeffer went on to become widely recognized as one of the preeminent theologians of the 20th century. His most well-known book is titled The Cost of Discipleship. Anybody ever read that book, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Uh, I was looking for my copy today. I couldn't find it, so uh, maybe I'll show it to you next week. But it's really just a classic commentary of what it means to follow Christ. And in, in the opening line of his book, of this book, The Cost of Discipleship, this is what Bonhoeffer wrote, quote, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church, end quote. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. Now, obviously, you're like, well, what did he mean by cheap grace? Well, he defined what he meant by cheap grace compared to costly grace with these words. And again, now I'm quoting from Bonhoeffer again. He said this, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell uh, all, his, uh, all his goods. Sound familiar? That's what we talked about on Sunday, right? It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Bonhoeffer went on to lament. He said this, we Lutherans have gathered like vultures around the carcass of cheap grace, and there we have drunk of the poison which has killed the life of following Christ. And I would suggest to you that we modern-day Christians have gathered like vultures around the same carcass of cheap grace and have drunk the same poison which 
Bonhoeffer wrote about back in the 1930s and 40s. And, and because of that, it, it has killed Christianity in our day. It seems like few in the church today understand what it truly means to follow Jesus Christ. In other words, what it, what it truly means to be a Christian. What, what is a true Christian? And, and by the way, following Christ and being a Christian are one and the same. Of all the statements that Jesus made during his ministry years, none was repeated more often than the simple phrase, follow me. It appears uh, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, some 20 times. The first appearance is in Matthew 4.19, when Jesus said to Peter and his brother Andrew, follow me, and I will make you what? Remember? Fishers of men. Jesus said the same thing to Matthew, the tax collector, in Matthew 9.9. He said, follow me. And you remember Matthew left his tax office and followed Christ. He said it to the rich young ruler in all three of the synoptic gospels. He said it to Philip in John 1.43. In John 10.27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. In John 12, 26, he said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And the last record of this key phrase is found in John 21. And you remember, you, I'm sure you remember that interesting dialogue between Christ and Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And after indicating to Peter how he would die, two times Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And it's as if the Spirit of God purposely ended the account of Christ's life and ministry in the Gospels with this, with this clarion call echoing throughout history for all to hear. Follow me, 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 me. And the fact that these two words were uttered from the lips of Jesus himself and that they dominate his message to mankind indicates to us that they must be Crucial to understanding the true essence of Christianity. In other words, for someone to be a Christian, they must have a clear grasp of what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. And so the purpose of this short little series this summer is to clarify what it actually means to follow Jesus. What does it mean to follow Christ? And what I want to do is I want to look with you at all the passages in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus himself explained and illustrated what he meant when he said, follow me. Because of all the Gospel writers, Luke provides us with the most help when it comes to um, understanding the profound implications of, of following Jesus Christ. Matthew, uh, Mark, and John in their Gospels, chose to emphasize the gracious invitations of Christ. Come to me, all who are, what? Weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Whereas Luke chose to focus on what could be referred to as Christ's radical de-invitations. I'm not sure you're familiar with that expression, de-invitation. I'm sure you're familiar with an invitation you, you maybe grew up in a church or in, in, in church context like I did where, you know, at the end of every service, there was an invitation for people to come 
to Christ. And uh, the pastor would have you, you know, bow your head and close your eyes and pray this prayer. And then if you prayed the prayer, we want you to raise your hand. And if you raise your hand, I want you to stand up. And if you stood up, I want you to come forward. And if you, if you come forward, I want you to fill out this card and write the, the invitation. We're, used to, we're, we're familiar with the invitation to follow Christ. But what about de-invitations? Well, leave it to Jesus, right, to do the exact opposite of what so many pastors and churches are doing today. And I think what many fail to realize is that Jesus spent as much, if not more time, driving people away from following him as he did inviting people to follow him. And so he made it clear up front that following him would not be easy. There, were, there, there, there are conditions to meet. There are considerations to ponder. There are challenges to face. And there are costs to consider. And let me just quickly show you these passages that we're going to look at. Luke 9.23. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Luke 9.23. This is where we're going to start next Wednesday. Luke 9.23. And Jesus was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. These are the conditions to following Christ. Look at the next three verses, or the next, uh, yeah, the next three verses. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Forever is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. These are the considerations that we're to ponder if we are going to follow Christ. And then look at the end of that chapter, Luke 9, verse 57. Luke chapter 9, verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit, first, for, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will, follow, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Those are the challenges to following Christ. And then turn over to Luke 14, just a few chapters to the right. Luke chapter 14, verse 25, I reference this passage on Sunday. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. 
Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. These are the costs that we are to consider. And so we have conditions. There are conditions to meet. There are considerations to ponder. There's challenges to face. There are costs to consider. And then we'll wrap up at the end of our series looking at a case study, if you will, in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we have a case study of someone who chose not to follow Christ. And of course, that's the story of the rich young ruler. Again, I reference this passage from the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday. But in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, Luke records, a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Do you notice the common denominator in all of these passages that we've read? It's that phrase, follow me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What did Jesus mean when he said, follow me? Well, he explains it to us in these passages. He illustrates it for us in these passages. And so, this is what we're going to look at this summer. We're just going to walk our way through the Gospel of Luke. And I just want to warn you ahead of time that to our modern ears, some of the things that we're going to hear Jesus say are going to sound impossible. And by the way, they are. Because Jesus himself said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God, right? It's impossible for anyone to inherit eternal life in and of themselves. But just be ready for what sounds like impossible demands that Jesus made for someone to be a Christian. And we're going to be talking about not just what it means to be a disciple, a radical disciple of Jesus. No, we're going to talk about what it means to be a a Christian. Just, just an average Christian. What does, it, what does it mean to be an average Christian? Well, there was, no, there was no JV and varsity Christians. There's just one kind of Christian. And so if, if we're not willing to comply with these demands, then we're not fit to follow him. But based on Jesus' own words, it's patently obvious that when he said, follow me, he was demanding that a person... You ready for this? Completely and permanently commit their life to trust and obey him as their Lord and Savior. That's what he meant when he said, follow me. That we are to 
completely and permanently commit our life to trust and obey him as our Lord and Savior. No holding back and no turning back. Or as Bonhoeffer simply but profoundly put in the cost of discipleship, he said it this way, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You've heard me say this before that it's typically not books. Book, books don't change your lives. Sentences change your life. Paragraphs change your life. And that sentence is what I think put Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the cost of discipleship on the map was that simple statement, that simple sentence, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The series is based on that sentence, or at least the title of the series is based on that sentence. That's where I got it from, come and die. And uh, we're going to look again at these, these passages where Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, which is, was another way of saying what? Come and die. A cross in those days was not a piece of jewelry. It wasn't a necklace. It wasn't earrings. It wasn't something pretty that you'd put up on a wall. You know, we all have a cross on the wall. We have a cross back here, right? Um, it, it was, it was, a, it was an instrument of death. And so while this may sound heavy and this may sound dreary and negative. Hang in there to the end. Because even as Bonhoeffer said, it may be costly grace, but it's grace. Because your Christ is inviting us to come and die so ultimately we could what? Live. And, and know and enjoy and experience true life, abundant life in Christ. And so don't let the, 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 what may sound gloomy um, to misrepresent where this whole thing is going to take us. And that is where we can glory in the cross. And instead of seeing the cross as this ominous thing, it's a glorious thing because it's a source of, of, of true life and true hope, and true joy. And so I want to encourage you to, um, maybe if you noted those verses, those texts, um, you could be reading those over uh, in the weeks to come and uh, praying through those, maybe doing some of your own study and uh, come ready to talk about it and learn and grow together of what it means to follow Christ and Hopefully so that by the end of this whole thing, that everyone who comes here and sits through this series can have the confidence that they have truly answered Christ's call to follow him. In other words, that you know you're truly saved. You know that you are a true Christian. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for tonight and just giving us an opportunity to gather together 
as your people and to pray together. It was just precious to hear the prayers of the saints and lifting up our brothers and sisters who are in need and praying for gospel opportunities. And we just ask that you would continue to unite our hearts as a church. Lord, and thank you for giving us your word that is the only trustworthy standard of what we should believe and how we should live. And Lord, we come humbly and submissively to this series wanting to accurately, rightly understand your word. I pray that I would speak the truth clearly, faithfully, Lord, practically. And Lord, that those who come, Lord, would hear your voice speaking to them, ultimately the voice of Christ speaking to them through his words here in the pages of Scripture. And that if there's those who are here tonight, those who may come as, as uh, in, the, in the weeks to come, those who maybe think they're a Christian, uh, but there's nothing in their life that would give evidence that they're truly saved, that, or that, that this would be the series, the, 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 the text, the, the, the verses in your word that would give them a clear understanding of what it means to be a Christian. They would truly repent and truly believe in Jesus and follow him. And Lord, for those of us that, that are truly saved by your grace, Lord, that we would be reminded and stirred up by way of reminder of what, what you require of us as your followers, and that it would just excite us and motivate us to be even more committed, even more dedicated um, to pursuing Christ and, and, and following hard after Christ and helping others find and follow Christ too. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.